Well, as we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 today, I want to give a shout out to Daniel for preaching chapter 9 last week. But as we come to 10, chapter 10, I want to put this a big thought before you today. And it's this idea on the screen. The way forward often begins with understanding the past. I'm sort of uh, paraphrasing or plagiarizing, uh, I think, uh, Soren Kierkegaard, who said that we live life forward, but we understand it looking back. And so when we come to chapter 10, we see this connection. And the, the first century believers in Corinth, like the Jewish people uh, before them, saw life, saw salvation history as a continuation, as one giant story. And can I just say that wise people get that? Wise people don't have everything divided and categorized. Wise people see a connection, our story and how it connects to the larger story, our past with our present and what could be in the future. And so we see this uh, in chapter 10. The way forward often begins with understanding uh, the past. Now, Paul would use uh, what it was common in the day it was a device, a rhetorical device called typology. Uh, he used these, uh, what the English word would be typos, not typos like you and I make when we make errors in our communication, but typos, T-Y-P-O-S, is uh, a- examples. He's saying, hey, there are examples from the Hebrew people uh, that the first century believers in Corinth could see. There's examples in the first century believers in Corinth that we can see. And he looks, he gives these, uh, these analogies, uh, and we, we see God's, we see God's uh, presence in Exodus 13 and 14. We see God's presence uh, through the Hebrew people in the cloud. And in 1 Corinthians 3, we see God's presence uh, in the temple. And by the way, we are the temple. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. When we gather, God's presence can be manifest in the midst of us. We see God's deliverance. The Hebrew people in Exodus, they saw God's deliverance through the parting of the Red Sea. He made a way to pass. And we see that metaphor, the similar metaphor in 1 Corinthians, where through baptism, uh, God provides, he delivered. Just as he delivered the Hebrew people from Egyptian slavery, he delivers us from our own sin. We see that as the picture of baptism. And we we see God's uh, provision. We see the provision of people. Their spiritual food was the manna from heaven in Exodus 13 and 14 and beyond. And then we come to 1 Corinthians and we see the first church doing what Jesus taught them to do and what we will do today. Uh, the food, the spiritual food is, is the cup. And so these metaphors, uh, Paul uses these typologies or these typos, if you will, uh, to show us the similarities, to show us the continual story, to teach us about God's presence, to teach us about how God delivers, to teach us about God's Provision. I was talking to someone yesterday in light of this sermon, anticipating this sermon, and we were talking about God as a deliverer. My friend said, yeah, that's almost become a charismatic word today. And I don't mean that pejoratively, we just mean that categorically. It's, it, it's a sad thing that we, in non-denominational churches or whatever background you're from, Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterian, we don't use that enough, God being a deliverer. God can deliver us. And he, he does, his presence, his provision, his deliverance is there for us. And so this continual story we see, they're understanding the way to move forward, the way to live forward is by understanding our past. And so here's what he does. Now these things took place as typo, as uh, typology, as examples for us so that we will not desire evil things as they did. 1 Corinthians 10, 6, 1 Corinthians 10, 11, similar fashion, it's the same word, typology, um, metaphor here. These things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages 
have come. What were their examples? If you read 1 Corinthians 10 in total, which I want you to do uh, later, uh, we're saving time today and not reading it all out loud in this worship service. But if you read it, you'll see that uh, just in the first several verses of 1 Corinthians 10, that uh, they craved evil desires, verse 6. They engaged in idolatry, verse 7. They became immoral, verse 8. They tested the Lord's faithfulness, verse 9. They grumbled against God, verse 10, and the leaders. Don't grumble against your leaders, by the way. Talk to them. Leaders aren't mind readers. Let them know. Don't grumble against them. Don't grumble behind their back. Don't grumble uh, to God. So these things were written for our example because the way to live forward is by understanding our past. And so these typologies Paul puts before us. And listen, what about our hearts? It's so easy to look at other people and judge. One of the, listen, I don't know if you're a religious person, but one of the things that religious people can do better than anybody is judge other people's sins. And it's easy for us to say, oh my goodness, they crave these evil desires. They engaged in idolatry. They became immoral. They tested the Lord's faithfulness. They grumbled against God and his leaders. Oh my goodness, how terrible they were. But we are prone to some of these errors as well. So what I want to do today is put from chapter 10, put three uh, questions uh, before us. And the first question is simply this. Question one, what is idolatry? Now, this verse 6, it says they they craved evil desires. You'll see that, again, back in verse 11. And it tells us in in verse 14, we'll look at it at the end. It says, flee idolatry. But what is idolatry? There's the Greek word here for evil desires from chapter 10 and verse 6. And it's this word, epithumia. And thumia is, and I want to ask you today before you go, what is your epithumia? So when you say, hey, when someone says to you, hey, what did the preacher talk about at Fondren? You can say, hey, man, he asked me my epithumia. And I want you to have an answer for him, okay? And I may check in with you later this week as well. Hey, what's your epithumia? We'll talk about it at home. But this word, let's break it up a little bit. Thumia is desire. And epa is, it means, honestly, it's super great. So the implication is that when they craved, then they had these, they were craving these evil desires it was epithumia where these desires were so great it controlled them one more time these desires were so great that it controlled them at least once a week someone will want to talk to a staff here to some ministerial staff and part of the conversation will be a confession and at its core we're going to talk about a desire that became so great that it's controlling them and I'm not up here on a perch, lofty, lofty, and looking down on anybody. We all have these desires. We all have good desires, and we have desires that can become so easily distorted by the world that we live in. And he's writing to them, and he's saying, okay, you have these evil desires, this epithumia, and your desire can be a good one, and it can get, become so great that it starts to control you. So I want to give you this definition of idolatry, paraphrased in part by the late Tim Keller, who passed away this last week. A little bit of his, a little bit of mine. Idolatry is this. It's whatever you feel like you have to have to live with power and happiness. It's what you feel like you have to have, epithumia, to live with power and happiness. For Adam and Eve, remember God put them in a garden and he said, hey, you can have, look, look what you have. 
Look, all that is yours, it is abounding, and you can abound in vitality. You can flourish in this garden. But Adam and Eve, they wanted the one thing that they didn't have. The children, 1 Corinthians 10, many, many references here about their hearts and their rebellion and their idolatry. And people like, listen, this is serious. Like people died, like 23,000 people died in one day. This is serious stuff. Go to a church where they'll preach God's love and they'll talk seriously about sin and its effectiveness or its impact on us because it's a real, real thing. Idolatry is anything that you have to have. It can be something that seems benign and innocuous. It can be a church building. It can be a child. It, it, it can be money. It can be power. It can be the opinions of other people. Uh, it's just so easy for us to produce these evil desires. It's anything, whatever you feel like you have to have to live with power and live with happiness. For, let's recap. For Adam and Eve, it's what they didn't have. For the children of Israel, it's what they used to have. Why did they complain? They complained about the food and the water. They didn't like the manna from heaven because it was the same thing every day. Any of y'all got a big happy dog at home and you give him some human food? Anybody do that? Uh, My wife accuses me of doing that all the time. Maybe because when I'm eating human food, the dog is like right there expecting to get something from me when she's in the room. Anybody do that? Because you you don't want your dog, even though I I think they should, you don't want to give them the same thing every day. And the people of Israel in the wilderness, they were wandering in the wilderness and it was hot and they, they had left comfort and security and familiarity. And by the way, when God is working, just because something is new doesn't mean it's wrong. Just because God is stirring something up in you doesn't make it a bad thing. But listen, some of us more than others, some of you are wired this way and we know who you are. You worship, your idol is familiarity and comfort. It's safety and security. And it's going to be hard to live a life of adventure and faith if you're always wanting what you used to have. And so God was calling them to something different. For Adam and Eve, it's what they didn't have. For the children of Israel, it's what they used to have. You want to go back to slavery? You want to go back to Egypt? Well, we could count on some things. It wasn't perfect, but it seemed to be better than this. And I don't know where this is going. And this has turned into, you know, this is way worse than Gilligan's Island. This has turned into a 40-year journey. And so idolatry, let's put it up again. It's whatever you feel like you have to have to live with power and to live with happiness. I want to give you an idolatry test. That's another thing we're doing today. Say, what is your epithumia? And then we'll give you an idolatry test. Here's some questions to determine what might be inside of you. You just have to have it. Uh, To have power and to have happiness, I've got to have this. Think of these questions. What do I fear losing? What do I worry about not getting? What keeps me up at night? Where do I go for comfort? What do I make sacrifices for? How do I notice my mood rising and falling? Who can I not forgive? When you feel like somebody's robbed you and you can't overcome that, that points to something that could be uh, an idol in your own heart. I say that with great tenderness because I know there's pain there for some of us. But think of these questions, and these very questions, if you probe, can point you to the idol or idols that could exist in your heart. And so what is idolatry? It's whatever you feel like you have to have in order to have power, in order to have happiness. It points us 
deeper inside to what we're craving. Years ago, I was with a group of uh, pastors and staff leaders at a variety of churches, and we were doing an exercise where we broke up in the larger auditorium. We broke up into smaller groups, and we were talking about idolatry. And we were talking about what are our idols. And so we did these little small group focus groups for us to come back to the larger group and talk about what we came up with. But the question became at one point was what's the number one idol? Like collectively, what do you see as the number one idol that people in our culture, in our region of the country are dealing with? Everybody here was from the southeast or ministered at churches in the southeast. They said, hey, y'all come back and here's what we discovered. The answer that came out of our group and every other group was, you ready for this? This is going to step on some of you. Our idol, our number one idol that competes with God's place in our heart. You're not ready for this. It's our, um, our, our allegiance to sports. The time and the money and the conversational energy around sports. And I heard pastors talking and I heard these conversations I was a part of and I heard Pastors talk about, hey, when our, when our team is playing, a lot of our people aren't there. When our team is lost, the worship mood is more melancholy that day. I heard people talking about the movie Will Smith played in Concussion, where they boast, the NFL, we have a day of the week, and they do have a day of the week. Uh, some of uh, parents, one pastor mentioned this, that some parents worry about losing their kids as they be, uh, become teenagers. Listen to me, parents. I'm going to lose my kids to drugs or alcohol, promiscuous sex or something like that. But you lose them long before that with travel ball and stuff like that. And so we have these idols. And man, our time and our money and our allegiance and our conversational energy goes to this thing in our region of the country. Maybe like, and I, this wasn't scientific. It was just people talking. But it seems like that's a thing that can be such a good thing. And can you get to a place where you can enjoy this, but it doesn't own you and doesn't take control of you and you make decisions uh, around God and not around sports? So idols, what is idolatry? Whatever, whatever you think you have to have to bring you power, to bring you happiness. The second question, besides what is an idol, is this how does it corrupt us how does idolatry how does it affect us how does it get in us martin luther the german reformer said so long ago he said looking at the ten commandments he said god gives us he said god book in the, the the ten commandments the first commandment and the tenth commandment the first commandment says what does anybody know thou shalt what have no other gods before me anybody remember the tenth commandment the 10th commandment says, thou shalt not covet. Do you see the similarity? Do you see that? Do you see how both of those, in essence, speak to the idolatrous heart of all of us? He, Luther said they book in. If you, get, if you get those two right, then everything else can become a piece of cake. If you don't put anything else before God, if you're not looking around and coveting, which is, I think, a little harder in our day, isn't it? No one's off the hook. You don't get an excuse for coveting. But it's just a little bit easy with our tools and our technology. It's just easy for us to do that. But Luther would say, if you don't put any other gods before him, if you don't covet what you don't have, then the other commandments, those other eight in the middle, that can be a piece of cake to walk that out. St. Augustine once described, I've used this illustration before, but he talked about how our sin, um, he uses the, the analogy of smoke of billowing smoke and that when when we sin 
it's easy for us just to capitalize on our behavior or try to correct our behavior. And that's the smoke. But he says that we've got to get deeper to look to see where the fire is. If there's smoke, you're going to look for the fire. And I love this metaphor because no one would be at home. You wouldn't be at the house later today and see billowing smoke inside your home. And you would not look over to a spouse or roommate or child, whoever's living with you in the room at the time. You would not say, hey, open up that window. I smell smoke. You would not do that. You wouldn't try to wave it away if it's getting close to you and cough it away. You wouldn't open a window or wave it away. You would go to the source of that smoke. You would say, where is the fire? And you would want to deal with that. And I think that's a great picture that St. Augustine gives us of the idol factory in our, all of our hearts. When there's sinful behavior, when you're acting out of turn, when you're doing the stupid thing, when you're easily beset by this recurring sin, when you're befuddled by this complicated emotion, then you should look and you should ask, hey, this is the smoke, but where's the fire? What's the source and what can be done? Several, several years ago, I asked Susan. I wanted to get to deeper into my heart. And she's the one that God has called and gifted in my life to help me get there like nobody else. And so I asked her one time years ago. I said, hey, would you help me by just talking? I, I want you to talk about my sin. And I want to point it back to what might be the idols in my heart. And um, FTR, by the way, for the record, huge mistake. She was right there. I think she had a list on the bedside table. She pulled it out and just started gunning me down with my sins, just one after the other. Huge mistake. And she was so ready to talk about my sin. But here's what she revealed. Here's what it revealed. She was tapping into my willingness. I gave her the green light. I don't do it often, but I gave her that green light. And here's what it revealed in me. Getting naked just, to, just for a bit is it revealed that I can be enslaved to the opinions of other people? That my sin, whether it's pouting or being easily angered at times or withdrawing or overextending myself or whatever it may be, uh, acting out of turn or saying stupid things, whatever the sin may be, the list was long, but it pointed to one central matter, how I wanted to please other people. I, it mattered what other people thought of me and I wanted to be a success and I just hated the thought of being disrespected by someone or not being seen as successful. I didn't want other people to see me less than. And that was what was brewing deep inside me. So here's what I want to say to you. It is my sin. We're answering the question, how, how, does, how do these idols corrupt us? But it's your sin that fans the flames of these idolatries. It's your sins and these evil cravings that will pull you off course. Second Peter 1.11, Peter would say this, before his martyr's death being burned at the stake, he didn't know it, but he said that we should flee evil desires. Evil desires, he would qualify, flee evil desires that wage war against your soul. This is a battle. Listen, we probably don't say it enough. Look at me today. It's a battle. It's a spiritual battle, and your soul is at stake. Your family uh, is at stake. Some of you are fighting hard for God and country. Listen, all good, but your, your soul, your family, your people, your future is at stake here. And it's a serious, serious, flee these evil desires that wage war against your soul. James chapter 1, verse 13 through 15 would say, 
hey, what is, what is temptation? Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and God himself tempts no one. But temptation occurs when we have these evil desires. We get enticed. We get dragged away by our evil desires, and we get enticed. And these desires give birth to sin, and when sin is conceived and fully mature, it gives birth to death. And read 1 Corinthians 10 on your own, there's death. There was death in the wilderness uh, because God hates idolatry. There's death in 1 Corinthians. We're going to read it next week. There's death at the Lord's Supper. We hope today as we take, come to the Lord's table, no one dies. But that's ultimately in God's hands. But there, it's serious, and it's serious to God. If, if you worship money, then, and, and if you worship money and material possessions, let's throw that in, then it, you'll never have enough, and you'll be stingy. And for many of you, I, 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 won't, I won't be a generous person because you want money, you want more. And if you give it away, you feel like God won't keep his promise. And so you wait to be generous uh, until you have enough. And if we found out if we don't give first, we never have enough because it's all spent. But if you worship money and material possessions, you'll live a stingy life. You'll live a miserable life. You really won't be happy. If you worship body and sexual allure, when time and age come for you, you'll die a thousand deaths before they finally bury you and put you in the ground. If you worship intellect and wanting to be smart, wanting to be known as smart, you will ultimately lie You'll to bend the truth. And you'll live with this vague sense of being found out. And you'll alter things about you to prove things that aren't true about other people. And you'll forget your lies and what you said if you worship your intellect. Same thing if you worship the opinions of other people and what they think. And so what is idolatry? And how does it corrupt us? These desires, they distort us. They take us away. I was talking to one of our um, leaders at the church in, behind me in our office before the service. We were praying together. And we were talking about what idolatry does. And this is why I'm excited to talk about it and address it from 1 Corinthians 10. There's an example in Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 30 where King Hezekiah, anybody remember him? And the first thing he does when he takes the throne is he roots out the idols. He roots out these images. And the path to revival, the path to true worship is when we begin to tear things down that are getting in the way of us and God. And listen, that stuff is cotton candy. That stuff, whatever it is for you. And listen, people online today watching from their beach condo or mountain bungalow, it's different. Whether you're here in the house or watching, it's different for all of us. We have different idols. And yes, there's some similarities that pull us. But the deceitfulness of riches, the cares of other things, the worries of this life, it's different. And you have things that occupy you. Can I, can I say to you, do business with God. Don't open the window and wave your hand and say the smoke needs to get out of here. The sinful behavior, these complicated emotions in you, ask God to show you where the fire is and then be ready to partner with him to dismantle this idolatry in your heart. So what is an idol? How does it corrupt us? Here's the third question. We won't be too long today. Here's the third question. You don't see this coming. Does it really bring me in contact with demons? Does it really bring me in contact with demons? Now you have to look at the last part of chapter 10. 
uh, verses 18 to 20 says this. Consider the people of Israel, this typology, these typos again. He's going back as an example. Do not uh, those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? What am I saying then, that food sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? This is 1 Corinthians 8 from a couple of weeks ago. No, but I do say that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So that'll preach, won't it, on Memorial Day weekend? I do not want you, listen to me, church, look at me. I I know and love some of you. I do not want you to participate with demons. Very important reality. Let's talk for just a second. Let's talk about the devil. Ephesians 2.2 says he's the prince of the power of this air. John, Jesus in John 12, 31, would call him the ruler of darkness. Now listen to me. What does that mean? It means he's infiltrating the institutions of our world today. It means he's in education and he's in philosophy and he's in uh, vain speculations and false religions. Uh, The thoughts and opinions and ideas and views of of the majority of people are, uh, he's got them ensnared. They're in his grip. He's the prince of the power of this air, Ephesians 2.2. 2. Uh, anybody need some air today? Anybody benefiting from some air right now? Uh, air is really important. It's everywhere. And so the scripture uses these metaphors. It's saying that he's ruling over. Now listen, he is large, but he's not ultimately in charge. But he is large. He has great sway and he has great influence. And this can help you interpret current events. This can help you as you watch shows like The View and even uh, stuff to the far right. You can see his grip on people. You can see his grip in the thoughts and ideas and opinions and views and speculations and false ideologies and religions of this world because he is large. He's not ultimately sovereign and in charge, but he's very large. And he's swaying and he's influencing. Paul would write another letter to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4. And he would say that he's blinded the minds of unbelievers. He's blinded the mind of unbelievers. But he would tell you, and this is the gift of the gospel, if you know Jesus, Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So he would say to us is to look at the world and remember our enemy is not flesh and blood it's principalities and powers okay you with me it's demonic forces it's the devil himself these are our enemies that person you're arguing with that person you don't see things uh, equal to politically that's not your enemy love them respect them be slow to anger toward them listen to them you may learn something from them they may have a view that you need Because all truth is God's truth. You learn truth at church. You learn it always in scripture. You can learn it from an atheist at a bar. And so learn and listen and value everybody. First Peter 2, respect everyone. But we need to understand. And 2 Timothy 2, 26 talks about this. That uh, those in the world have been ensnared in the grip of the enemy. And they need to come to their senses. And so, oh, the boldness and the compassion that we could have as followers of Jesus to help people be transformed from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of his beloved son. And so here's what I want to say in reading this chapter from 1 Corinthians 10, is that our idolatry that leads, that manufactures this sinful behavior in us, it's the portal to giving the enemy a stronghold in our life. And so Christian, 
be careful. Christian, be very, very careful. Don't just open the window and wave your hand and talk about how you wish the smoke would be gone. Find the source of the fire. Look at these diagnostic questions that I went out of my way to give you today in this sermon. Look at them. We'll post them later, but look at them. Use it as a diagnostic tool. Where do you go for comfort? What soothes you? What keeps you up at night? Who do you struggle to forgive? Where's your allegiance? What occupies your thoughts? These questions are very, very important to determine what's happening deep within you. What is idolatry? Whatever you feel like you have to have to possess power and happiness. How does it corrupt us? These evil desires lead us astray. If you see, I've already said it, but if you, just to recap in chapter 10, they craved evil desires. Uh, they engaged in idolatry. They became immoral. They tested God's faithfulness. They grumbled against God and his leaders. And those things can be part of our experiences way too often in our own hearts. And so as Lauren and the team begin to come up and as we get ready for the table today to remember and for every Christian to remember what Jesus has done for us. I want to throw a passage up um, from Numbers 21 about the folks in the wilderness. It says, the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. And anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. You see, they craved evil desires. They engaged in idolatry. They became somebody that God did not call them to be. So God is saying, here's an answer. Here's an antidote for this time and this place and this people. No one's asking you to go make a bronze snake today. But here's what was happening. And here's what Jesus would say right two verses before, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Here's what Jesus would say about this snake. John chapter 3. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. It was a picture of God's presence, of his deliverance, of his provision. And we find it in Jesus. By the way, as a matter of historical record, whatever became of that bronze snake? Don't you want to know that? 2 Kings 18.4. He removed the high places. He smashed the sacred stones and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nishtan. So this was originally, Numbers 21 occurred 800 years before that if you're marked 800 years so for eight centuries almost 800 years they preserved it they protected I imagine they polished it they carried it with them and then finally they made an idol out of it and they turned on it and here's what I'm saying to you this is so ancient it's so primitive you're like preacher what are you doing today this is referenced in 1 Corinthians 10 that you'll read later but here we see what's true for us is there something good, something that could be effective, something that could be even God-ordained? We could take that good thing and we could take it way beyond it being a gift, way beyond it being useful in our lives, and we can make an altar out of it. We can make an idol out of it. And your sin will point you to the altar that you built, to the idols in your life. 
and the things that keep you up at night and where you go for comfort and what you, who you struggle for. All these things point us to what that is. I love what the beloved, aged apostle John said. The older people get, the more I want to listen to what they have to say. And John said this. He said this. Dear children. By the way, I love the tenderness of language. Even though 1 Corinthians 10 has death and destruction and God's judgment, it has His grace, His marvelous and glorious provision of deliverance. It has tenderness. He says, brothers and sisters, in verse 14, flee idolatry. Let's go back to that. Here's John. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. So back if we would. I'm messing you up upstairs, I know. But 1 Corinthians 10, see then, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. How do you flee? The verse before it. Verse 13 says this. No temptation, have you heard this? Has come upon you except what is common to man, to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able but with the temptation. He will also provide the way so that you may be able to bear it. Listen, it's not in a a pole and a snake and something bronze. It's in the person of Jesus Christ. And here's what I want you to do with verse 13. If anybody's got an open Bible, highlight it underline it circle it if you got lipstick smear it on there prick a finger and mark it in your blood listen to me the way to crush the idol factory of our hearts the way to move us away from evil desires having such a grip on us epithumia having this grip on us that we just have to have it and it's controlling us the way to break the grip of that is to realize that God is real that he's near that he's present and that he's ready to help. And he is faithful to be able to do that. And that's what will crush these idols of our hearts. Would you stand with me? Father, bless worship now as we come to the table, as we walk to the elements to take the two cups, the one that has the bread representing the body broken, the one that has the juice representing your blood shed for us. God, I pray that you help us long to to see you work and our idolatry and our sinful behavior flows from something but Lord it's not greater our sin is not greater than your grace and as you provided for people of old in wilderness settings you provide for us and we celebrate as a church family we do it on the regular with baptism and we do it regularly with communion and so receive this now Jesus, we pray. Amen. The instructions are simple. Uh, if you're a first-time guest, uh, I haven't been here when we've done communion. If you're a believer in Jesus, follow the person in front of you, and you'll receive the elements and go back to your seat, and in your time, uh, take those cups that represent Jesus Christ.